Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit LifePointPB.com. If you need a Bible this morning, our ushers have them, so just wave at them as they walk by. And turn with me over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing on. The title of the message this morning is Happy Are the Hungry. Happy Are the Hungry. Now, we don't believe that, right? As a matter of fact, we've created a new word called hangry. It means I'm hungry and angry, all right? But Jesus said, Happy Are the Hungry. What do you mean by that? You realize there are no, there are no desires that we have, physically speaking, that are any greater or longer lasting in our life than hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst and maybe rest would go right along with that. Your body was designed for it. God made us that way, and so we have these drives for, for food, for water, for rest. And Jesus said, happy are the hungry. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 5, verse 6, he says, blessed or truly happy, inwardly happy, are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now we've, and I don't have time to cover, go back this morning um, on all the things that we've talked about up to this point. You can listen to those messages. But the Lord's been laying a foundation. He gets to this point and he's going to begin to turn a corner with this. And he's going to talk about righteousness. It is the first of five times he's going to talk about righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. We will look at them. And, and I need you because I'm not going to have a lot of time this morning. And I'm only going to hit the first aspect of righteousness. And I'm not going to go into other things. And if you hear just the first part, you're going to say, wait a second, that doesn't seem right to me. There seems like there's some more that should be. There is more. As a matter of fact, this is verse 6. When we get to verse 10, he's going to talk about being persecuted for righteousness' sake, which means we've discovered what some of righteousness looks like, and we're being persecuted for it. All right. When he gets down to verse 20, he's going to tell us that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And he's going to give us six examples of how that's true and what that looks like. And then we're going to get to chapter 6, and he's going to talk about righteousness again. And then we're going to get to the end of chapter 6, and he's going to say, I want you to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else I'll add to you. Everything else I'll take care of, but make this the priority. Okay, so we're going to talk about righteousness several times before we get through the Sermon on the Mount. Today, I want to introduce what's foundational about this, though, and you have to see it. How many of you um, know what Dolly Parton soup is? Anybody know what Dolly Parton soup is? Nobody knows what Dolly Parton soup is. Got one, got one hand, one hand. One person who years ago, probably 20 or 30 years ago now, there was it, was, it was a popular, or sort of popular diet, Dolly Parton diet, um, and supposedly how she lost a lot of weight, but there was a soup that went with it. The soup is just a cabbage soup. Matter of fact, I don't even know if we have a picture of it or not. There's a picture of it. That's Dolly Parton soup, all right? It's cabbage and what other vegetables you want to cut, cut up and cook in a broth, all right? I remember the first time I had Dolly Parton soup. I had been, I had taken some time and gotten along with the Lord, and I had been fasting for a long period of time. And so I was getting ready to leave where I was at because it was kind of a secluded place. And the people who took care of the place where I was staying, they lived there year-round. Um, I had not seen them, but I knew they were there. And so b- the night before I was getting ready to leave, I thought I'd go down and maybe have a little dinner with them and try to 
renew some of my strength and all because when you fast for an extended period of time, you don't have the same energy level. And so I went down, and they were on the Dolly Parton diet. And so they were having Dolly Parton soup that night. Now, the thing about when you're on this, you can eat as much of that soup as you want. That's part of the diet. And you eat as much as you want. So I remember I came in, and I sat down, and they put Dolly Parton soup in front of me, and I took that first spoonful, and it was the most delicious thing I had ever put in my mouth. I, I mean, I'm oohing and on and mmm and oh, and it was awesome. Several months later, someone else offered me Dolly Parton soup, and I ate it, and I thought, well, it's okay. You know, I mean, it's, it's all right. Why was it so great a few months before, and it was just okay a few months later? Because of my hunger. Because I hadn't had anything, and everything. It was like my taste buds exploded when I began to taste this. This is the word that Jesus uses. This is the picture that he gives when he talks about hunger and thirst. He's talking about a hunger that's ravenous. He's talking about a thirst that if I don't get a drink of water, I'm going to die. That's the kind of hunger and thirst that he's talking about here. He said, you're blessed if you have this kind of hunger and thirst. Now, I've got good news for you, because you may be thinking, okay, how do I get this hunger and thirst? He's already put it in you. You don't have to get it. You don't have to work it up. He's already placed it. Let me ask you, how many of you in your physical body, you get hungry and thirsty? How many? Okay. In your spiritual body, he's already placed the same thing. He placed that in your physical body. He's also placed it in your spiritual body. The problem is we try to satisfy it with other things. And so it's like me having Dolly Parton soup a few months later as opposed to that first time when I hadn't had anything else. Here's where I want to go with this in the few minutes that I have this morning. When we hear the word righteousness, because we're, we begin to understand this hunger and thirst is something that is innate in us. It's something that God has put there. You've heard the saying that there's a God-shaped hole in every person that only he can fill. This is what we're talking about. There is already placed within human beings this hunger and thirst. Now, we don't know what it is. Sometimes we don't know how to define it, and we try all different kinds of things and ways to fill it. But he placed it there so that we would hunger and thirst for him. As a matter of fact, when we start talking about righteousness, when you hear the word righteousness, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Don't, you don't have to answer out loud, but just first thing that pops into your mind, what do you hear when you hear the word righteousness? For me, for a long time, when I heard the word righteousness, I started thinking about right deeds, doing the right thing. That's righteousness. Righteousness are people who do the right stuff, okay? And so righteousness was about a moral code, a, a, an, outward, an outward performance, things that I did or didn't do, things that I said or didn't say. These, this would be righteousness. This would be right living. Now, we're going to talk about some of that later on in the Sermon on the Mount, but that is not what Jesus is talking about here. He is not talking about right deeds. He's not talking about doing the right thing, however you define that. And see, what we've done often in the church, especially in America, but around the world, it, I see it when I go other places, we, you come into a church and it's like, well, I'm not sure what the righteous deeds are that I'm supposed to be doing. Oh, don't worry, we'll give you a list. We'll let you know what it is. You do this and you don't do that. You do this and you don't do that. Do you realize that this is... 2017, we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of something very special in the church this year. You know what it is? 500 years ago, something happened. The Reformation began, at least as we look at it. We kind of define it in 
1517 with Martin Luther nailing the 95 Thesis to the door in Wittenberg. Martin Luther, Calvin, others, they weren't the only ones, but others begin to rediscover a forgotten truth, one that we take for granted today, that we are saved, we are justified by, faith, by grace and faith alone. Faith in Jesus Christ by grace alone. They rediscovered that because for centuries the church had lost sight of that. That you cannot be saved by your good works. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. Salvation is by grace. It is God's gift to you. You receive it by faith or you cannot have it. You cannot get it any other way. It is the only way. They rediscovered that. And it changed the course of the next 500 years in the church. You and I today, we worship the way we do. We believe in many ways the way we do today because of what God began to do and what he allowed them to rediscover 500 years ago. The problem with the Reformation is, along with rediscovering that salvation was just by grace and by faith alone, there was still these seeds in, in that movement. And you can see it when you go back and read their writings where, okay, we get saved by faith alone, by grace alone. But now, because we've been saved, there's a bunch of do's and don'ts. There's a bunch of stuff we're supposed to do. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of responsibility that now falls on us to do this right and to do it in the right way. We call this, in theological terms, they call it sanctification. It's this changing, transforming process that the Lord does in us. He has changed us instantly when he makes us new believers. He has made us new creations. But he's also changing us in our soul and the way that we respond in different situations. He's changing us this ongoing process that's happening. So he has changed us, and he is changing us. He has sanctified us, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. He has already sanctified us, not just justified us. He's already sanctified us. But he's also, according to four verses earlier, he's still sanctifying us. All right? So somebody says, have I been sanctified or am I being sanctified? The answer is yes. You have been and you are being. And you say, I don't understand that. I don't understand it all either. It's like the Trinity and a whole lot of other things in there. But I believe Jesus when he says it. That he has done this. He has made me a new creation. He has made me as righteous as Jesus is righteous. Can I tell you something that's hard to believe? But when you get to heaven, Jesus will do nothing for you in heaven concerning your righteousness that he has not already done for you now. Nothing. You have already been made as righteous. If you are in Christ, if you have believed him, you have already been made as righteous as he is righteous. That's the reason 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that he, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin, who was perfect, who was righteous, took upon himself our sin. For what purpose? That you and I could become the righteousness of God in him. You will not be in heaven any more righteous than you are right now. You have to understand that. You have to believe that. You say, but Troy, I still sin, I mess up. Yes, you do, and so do I. But when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to this justification, you will not be any more justified, any more righteous then than you are now if you have believed and are in Christ, and he is in you. You have been made as righteous as he is righteous. He, you have taken on, he took your sin, you took on his sinlessness. You took on his righteousness. That is what 2 Corinthians 5 and many other places talk about. Now, you have to understand that. That's foundational. When we come to salvation, we believe that. But what happens, this, this dastardly thing that happens often in the church, 
is we get saved and we're so excited. I have received his righteousness. He has, he has changed me. There's something supernatural has, has happened and I can sense it. I, I know it. Um, and I'm excited about it. And then somebody well-meaning comes along and says, yeah, now that you're saved, you need to do this, 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 and this. And you need to stop doing this, 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 and this. And they're well-meaning. They really believe it. Somebody told them that, and it makes a lot of human sense. And so we create these lists of do's and don'ts and right and wrong and what we should be involved in. Now, there are things in Scripture that talk about our conduct and our way of life and the way that we live. But you need to understand something. Jesus did not die on a cross in order to change your behavior. He did not. That is such a low bar. If God Almighty wanted to change your behavior, he did not have to send his son to a cross to do it. I can change your behavior if you'll give me permission. If you will give me permission to do whatever it takes, I can change your behavior, and I'm not God. God could change our behavior in a million ways. He didn't send his son to change our behavior. He sent his son to make us new creations, to make us entirely new people, and to restore us in relationship to him. And as a result of that, my behavior often does change. But the focus isn't a change of behavior. The focus is on the righteous one. When Matthew says, blessed are those who are hungry, who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, you know how I translate it? Blessed, happy, truly blissful within are those who hunger and thirst for the righteous one. The ones who hunger and thirst for the righteous ones. And not just when you get saved, but every day of your life after you get saved. You hunger and thirst for him. Now, will that change my conduct? Yeah, it usually does. Will it change things I believe? Absolutely, no doubt. Will there be things that are transformed in me? Yes. But the goal, the foundation must be, the starting point must be a hunger and thirst for the righteous one, not necessarily for something or something else that needs to happen in my life. Do you understand? Are you following me with that? Because this is really, really important that we get this, so that we understand. Now, I want you to look at a couple passages of Scripture with me. Isaiah. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 2. There's two Old Testament passages where the Lord really brings this to light. And he's continuing this theme when he gets into Matthew chapter 5. Because remember, we've talked about there is a transition between Matthew between the Old Covenant, there in the Old Testament, and Jesus is introducing the New Covenant here in the Sermon on the Mount. Isaiah 55, verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? We're talking about hunger, right? Here he's saying, why do you do this? Why are you spending your money for bread that doesn't satisfy? Why are you laboring for bread, for things that will not meet that need? He goes on in this passage, what is he talking about? He's saying, I want you to turn to me. I want you to draw near to me. Look with me in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2. Oh, wait a second, go back. There's the last part of that verse I didn't even read. Can you go back one? There we go. Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. What is the rich food that he's talking about? Him. That's the reason the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Why? Because we understand food. We understand it. We understand taste. We, these are physical examples that we understand because we have longings for them. And he said, in the same way, I've made you to have longings for me. I've designed you that way, 
to have longings for me. Now, you can try to fill it up with other things that don't satisfy. You can spend your labor for that which does not satisfy. You can spend your money on that which doesn't satisfy. But what I made you for was to hunger for me, to hunger to be with me. Look at, look at Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be, uh, that doesn't look like the right verse. Um, keep going to the next part unless there's something that doesn't look like the right verse. Maybe I gave the wrong one. Um, Jeremiah 2. Let's go over here. And open up. Don't you hate it when the pages stick together? All right, Jeremiah 2. Can't get the pages unstuck. All right, here we go. Jeremiah 2, look with me. That is not the verse that I am looking for. Where is the verse about broken cisterns? There we go, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. Here's the two evils that they have committed. Number one, they have forsaken me. They're not hungry for me. They're not thirsty for me. This is the evil. They forsake me. They do not have a hunger and thirst for me. That's the first evil. I am the fountain of living water. I am the one. This is why in John 7, Jesus said, any thirst, let him come to me. Because I am living water. He told this to the woman at the well. You drink of me and you'll never thirst again. I am living water. I am that which satisfies this thirst that I have placed within you. It's different than physical thirst. It's much deeper. But I have placed it there so that I can fill it. I'm also the bread that satisfies. He talks about that in John as well, that he is the bread of life. I am the one who does that. Now notice this. He says, I'm the fountain of living water. Notice what he says in the last part of that verse. You have hewn out. This is the second thing that they have done. You have hewn out. You have constructed for yourselves containers to hold water that doesn't satisfy. You've, you've got a thirst substitute, and you've made yourself containers to hold your thirst substitute instead of drinking living water. Now, he may have spoken this. Jeremiah may have spoken this thousand, thousands of years ago. But it's as true today as it was the day he spoke it. That often as God's people, we are not thirsty for him. And what we have done is we have made ourselves contraptions to hold water substitutes that do not satisfy. As a matter of fact, they're broken. They've got cracks in them. They leak out. So first of all, we won't receive the living water. And second, we've tried to build up reservoirs to hold the stuff that won't satisfy that we're trying to replace the living water with. And I could go through a whole list, but if I start going through a list, I'll miss your, your thing, all right? But the Holy Spirit will tell you, if you'll ask him, what are the substitutes in your life? What are the water substitutes? What are the things that you're looking for to try to quench this thirst? But they never do. What are the cisterns, what are the ways, the containers that you've built to hold on to them? The longer I live, the more I see and recognize in myself and in others this tendency to always be looking for a substitute. To always be looking for something that will satisfy. And as much as 
everything I've tried didn't do it, somehow or another, I still believe maybe the next thing will. Maybe the next trip will. Maybe the next purchase will. Maybe the next relationship will. Maybe the next job will. Maybe the next answered prayer will. See, it can be, quote, good stuff that becomes a water substitute in our life. Jesus didn't design prayer so that you and I could get stuff from him. He designed prayer so that you and I would be closer to him, that we'd be in relationship with him. Not just so I could get stuff from him. You begin to realize that there's this hunger and thirst in you. And when you begin to taste living water, and when you taste the bread of life, nothing else satisfies. Nothing else will. If there is one passion that I have as your pastor, it is that you would taste and see that he is good. That you would hear his voice and be changed. Not just one time. If there's one thing that was probably a myth, one of the great myths of the Christian life for me, was this belief that I was going to receive something from the Lord that changed me for good. And then I was, I was set in that area, and I, didn't, I could go on at that point and just do it, you know, just walk in whatever God had given, whatever freedom I had experienced. I have discovered how wrong I was in that because he didn't design life, this Christian life, this kingdom living, for me to get a one-time fix and then be set so that I don't need him anymore. That's what he's been talking about all the way up to this point, poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, all of this need of him this desire for him. And he's saying, if you hunger and thirst for me, the righteous one, you'll be filled. You'll be satisfied. By the way, hunger and thirst in the Greek, the tense, it's present tense. You know what present tense means in the Greek? It means it's continuous action. It's, it keeps going. You keep being hungry. You keep being there. How many of you have eaten the meal that caused you to never be hungry again? Anybody eaten that meal yet? No. The only way I know that works is probably if it's your last meal. They, they kill you afterward. That's the only way that you eat a meal and you're never hungry again. You keep getting hungry. And the same is true in my soul. There is this need, there's this hunger and this thirst to keep coming back to him, to be ravenous for him, to be with him, to listen to him. I want to read something to you. I could spend all afternoon talking about this and just sharing with you story. I can tell you that in my own Christian life, it has been radically changed. My whole concept of who God is because a number of years ago, for the first time in my Christian life, I tasted that the Lord was good. I tasted him. I drank. I drank like a thirsty man who's parched, who's in the desert. And you say, well, when you got saved. No, this was after I got saved. This was as a believer. Because I began to realize that what he did for me at salvation, he does for me every day of my life. He keeps satisfying. He keeps nourishing, restoring, renewing, transforming. He keeps doing that. I want to read you something. Something. 
I'm going to ask Lori to come play. I wish we had another hour. I love this topic. I really do. He's good. Can I tell you something? Jesus is good. He's worth it. He's worth it. The reason we don't know that he's, the reason we don't believe he's worth it, because we haven't tasted. We haven't seen. We haven't. haven't we, when you taste and see, you realize he's good. He's better than your favorite food. And there's some food that's good. I've had people tell me I don't like food. I said, you've never eaten the right stuff. Because there's some food that's good. He's better than any of it. I was listening to a message this week by a man named Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning went to be the Lord here three, four years ago. He was a Franciscan priest, or at least at the beginning of his life and ministry. Did a lot of things. Toward the end of his life, he was a very popular speaker in evangelical circles. And he had one message. As a matter of fact, really this message that I was listening to, the title of this message is, um, oh, it just went. Is this a sign of old age? When just it's there, uh, God loves you as you are, not as you should be. Because none of us are as we should be. God loves you as you are, not as you should be, because none of us are as we should be. He was, Brennan Manning had been captured by the love of God. He had, been, he had tasted and seen that Jesus was good. Now, was he perfect? Far from it. As a matter of fact, he struggled with alcoholism his whole life, his entire life. But the last part of that message was so good, I typed it out. I just listened and typed it out. It'll take me a couple minutes to read it, but I want you to listen. If it helps you to concentrate, close your eyes. Leave them, whatever you need to do, but listen to this. In the winter of 1968, I was living in a cave some 6,000 feet above the Saragossa Desert in Spain. Yeah, you heard me right. He's living in a cave. I was living there for seven months in complete solitude. I never saw another human face. I never heard the sound of another human voice. On Sundays, a man from the village below would ride up on a burrow, drop off supplies at a designated spot, food, drinking water, and kerosene for the lamp. I'd get up every morning at 2 a.m., for what we used to call nocturnal adorations. I would try to spend at least one hour in praise and thanksgiving to God. On the night of December 13, 1968, during what began as a long and lonely hour of prayer, I heard in faith Jesus Christ say, for the love of you, I left my Father's side. And I came to you who ran from me, who fled me, who did not want to hear my name. For you I was covered in spit, punched, beaten, and fixed to the wood of a cross. Friends, that was over 35 years ago. And this morning in my hotel room, I realized that those words are still burned on my life. That night in the cave, I looked at the crucifix a long time figuratively saw the blood streaming from every wound and pore in Christ's body. And I heard the cry of his blood. This isn't a joke. It's not a laughing matter to me that I have loved you. The longer I looked, the more I realized that no man had ever loved me and no woman could ever love me as he does. 
I ran out of the cave into the darkness and shouted at the top of my voice, Lord, you are out of your mind. You have loved me so much. I learned that night what a dear man told me the day I went into seminary. He said, kid, I was 22 years old. You will not understand this now, but the day you experience the love of the heart of Jesus Christ, nothing in this world will ever again seem that beautiful or desirable. He's right. Once you experience the love in the heart of Jesus for you, nothing in this world will ever again seem that beautiful or desirable. So how long have you been a Christian now? How long have you been coming to church? How long have you been reading your Bible? Do you know in your gut what it is to love and be loved by the Lord Jesus? What is it to have your love unsatisfied, endured in loneliness? God ready to burst into your lonely, ravenous heart. I love the way he says that. Your hungry heart. God, he's waiting, longing to burst into your lonely hungry, ravenous heart? Have you known for one fleeting moment in your whole Christian life, have you known it and forgotten to remember what it was like the day that Jesus burst into the sealed chamber of your heart? The pain was taken away. The hole filled up. You reached out and embraced the sacred man in the same real intimate way that a man embraces a woman or a woman embraces a man. And said to him, come, hell or high water, no matter what happens in Iraq or Iran or North Korea or Syria or Wall Street, your world or your church, I can't walk away from you. My life has no meaning, direction, or purpose if you are not the center of my personal history. This is hungering and thirsting, folks. If that moment has not darkened your life with its brilliance, I don't care how young or old you are, male, female, clergy, laity, charismatic, traditional, progressive, conservative, you do not understand what Jesus meant by good news, by abundance, fullness of life in the Holy Spirit. And I submit that is why he called you here by name this morning. Yes, called you by name, not to scold or frighten or threaten, but to make you aware. Aware with new depth and greater dimension of his relentless tenderness, of his passionate pursuing, healing, reconciling, what Chesterton called the furious love of God incarnate in Jesus Christ. My friends, this and this alone is authentic Christianity. Not some code of do's and don'ts. Christianity is not primarily a moral code or a code of ethics or philosophy of life. It's a love affair. A love affair. The thrill, the excitement of allowing yourself to be loved by Jesus in your brokenness, of falling in love with him. He takes us to the Father. They, the Father and Jesus, they pour out the Holy Spirit on us and in us, not to be nicer people with better morals, but brand new creations, prophets, lovers, torches ignited with the flaming spirit of the living God. I never knew that. I never knew that. I spent most of my Christian life, I never knew that. I never knew this was supposed to be a love affair. I never knew that I was designed for it, that I was hungry for it. I didn't think I needed love. 
In my younger days, I was going to be a bachelor to the rapture. I wasn't even going to get married. I didn't need love. I didn't need women. didn't need people. If, if, honest, if I'm honest, I didn't even need God. But he didn't stop pursuing. And I knew the gospel. I responded to the gospel as a child. But I didn't know this. I didn't know this. Jesus says, happy are the hungry. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for me. They're changed. They're transformed. Life looks different. It's not about the do's and the don'ts. Oh yeah, there's stuff we need to know. Jesus will talk about that later on. But he says, if you miss this, then you'll miss the whole point of Christianity. I want you to bow your heads with me. I'm going to ask my prayer partners to come up here too, if you would, because we're going to dismiss in just a moment. Oh. We're going to worship the Lord in song together, but before we do, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to ask you, I want to appeal to you this morning. If you're wrestling with this, if you're saying, Troy, you seem a whole lot more excited about Jesus than I am. You seem more passionate about this. I can promise you I'm not on anything. I haven't had anything this morning but water. But I began to, to, to experience, to receive, to, to have revealed to me how much Jesus loves me, how passionate he is about me that I'm his favorite. Did you know that? I'm his favorite. But so are you. So are you. He's amazing that way. He can have all of us be his favorites at the same time. He'll love you like nobody has ever loved you. If you don't know him, well, that's where you start today. You know, after we sing in a moment, you come to one of these prayer partners and say, I don't know him. I don't have a relationship with Jesus like pastor's talking about. These guys, women, they'll, they'll pray with you. They'll, they'll just share it with you. They won't force you, but they'll walk with you. Maybe you, you know the gospel. You've prayed. You've received Jesus. You, you know you've been born again. And by the way, Francis Manning, I mean, um, Brennan Manning said that in the early days of the church, they didn't call it being saved or born again. They said, I have been apprehended by the divine affection. I've been apprehended by the divine affection. I like that. But if you know you've been apprehended by the divine affection, but yet you don't experience that the way Jesus is talking about here. Let us pray with you. Let's pray with you about it. Let us join you, because we're praying for ourselves in the same way. I guarantee you, everyone here, I am. I want to experience this more and more. I want new dimensions every day. 
of how much he loves me and responding to that and hungering and thirsting for him. You say, this sounds too good to be true. It is. That's why it's called amazing grace. Because humanly speaking, it's too good to be true. That's how much he loves you. Lord Jesus, I would talk all day, but I realize I can't communicate this. You can. You can reveal to us what we've, never, what we've never known, what we've never seen, what we've never felt. You reveal who you are. Do that in your people today in fresh, new dimensions, in new ways. Give us courage to believe what seems too good to be true. Give us faith to believe. And Lord, we'll believe you. Even someone asked Brennan Manning late in his life, do you really believe this? He says, oh, I so want to. I appreciate his honesty because I think even he, as much as he preached it, as much as he believed it, there were times he still doubted it. Lord, I do too. But Lord, I believe, now help my unbelief. Help our unbelief. Help us, Lord. Help us live in this love affair with you that transforms life as we know it. That's what you're introducing here in the Sermon on the Mount. A whole new way of living. So help us, Lord. We commit ourselves to you. We cast ourselves upon you. We come to you. We run to you. We listen for you. Speak to us. Tell us, Lord, what our hearts need to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name.